0: Good morning, church. Good morning. I've got a question for you. What is love? For many of us, that's a really deep question. That causes us to ponder and spend time reflecting on the Lord. And for the rest of us, that question just got a song stuck in our head. You know, if I, if I asked that question at a youth group, <clears throat> I wouldn't be able to finish the question without a student saying, Baby, don't hurt me. But... I'm sorry, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to do that. All jokes aside, it is actually an important question, right? Uh, We're told all the time in 1 John to love. Love one another or that God loves us. In chapter 2, verse 5, John tells us, whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. And again, in verse 9 of chapter 2, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And chapter 3 was all about loving one another, right? Verse 10 says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And he says it's part of the commandment we've been given by Christ. Remember chapter 3, verse 23, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another, okay? So it's important we know what love is. Last week... We looked at chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, which were all about how to test the spirits or how to know if somebody is a false teacher or not. These false teachers or any teacher at all had to have the right confession about Christ and they had to have the right alignment with God's word. But these verses were almost like an aside uh, put in brackets to John's topic and main idea, and that's love. We're going to look at a pretty long passage today, but it's all part of one thought that John has on God's love for us and our response to God in light of his love. So let's stand as we're able to and read 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, all the way down to chapter 5, verse 4a. That just means the beginning of verse 4 has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who do, does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Please be seated as we pray. Lord, now as we approach your word again, we ask that you would ready our hearts. Prepare us to be shaped by your word mold our lives around it. Spirit, do a work in us this morning. We pray and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, it's a long scripture, but John has given us a well-thought-out description of love. He's told us how we should define love, and then he's told us how love can be perfected or be brought to completion in our hearts. So let's start with that definition, love defined. In verse 7, John takes us back to the theme he's been developing. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. There's that exhortation again, right? Let us love one another. That keeps coming up throughout the book. And John gives us a clear reason why we should love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God. In other words... Loving one another is something that only someone who has been born of God can do. John's reasoning here is that his congregation should love one another because they abide in God. And love comes from God. So loving our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is a natural extension of the love we've received from God. He goes on to give us. Maybe the most famous quote from 1 John. It's so famous that even non-Christians have it memorized. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. The prerequisite, the, the qualification to know whether you know God or not is love. Anyone who does not love must not know God. And this brings us right back to chapter 2, right? If you say you abide in the light, but you hate your brother, then you must not abide in the light. You've got it all wrong. The one who loves his brother abides in the light. So this first part of verse 8 is not new for John in this letter. But the second statement, that's the really famous one, right? God is love, Now, people have taken this to mean really whatever they'd like it to mean. God is love, so it doesn't really matter what people believe. God is love, so he won't punish sin. God is love, so he wouldn't be upset with people that I love. Just loving people is really all that's important. Religion is really just love. All we need is love. Love is God. But that's not at all what John is saying here. He's saying that God gets to define love because real love pours out from God. Love comes from God's self-revelation to us. It's part of His character. And it's one facet of His being. Love is defined by our world in many different ways. And the mistakes that our world makes, we can also end up making. We can think that, God has to fit into our understanding or our definition of love. But the truth is exactly the opposite. If we have any hope that we're going to successfully love people, we have to love them in the way God commands us to love, in the way God defines love. I want you to notice something here in verses 9 and 10. Both both 9 and 10 start with, in this. Okay, so John is going to give us The definition of love. First in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. The first part of God's definition of love is his self revelation. God is great. amen? Amen? And he's greater than all things, not just a little bit greater. He's greater than all things. He stands outside of creation. Another way to talk about God in this way is to talk about His transcendence. God transcends all things. He's fundamentally beyond our understanding. He's so different from us that unless He reveals Himself to us, we would never interact with Him. We'll talk more about the doctrine of God's invisibility in a little bit. But God is love. He is so loving that he sent his son. His love was made manifest among us. So he revealed himself to us and that was loving of God. But he didn't just talk to us. He he did do that. We have the scriptures. But he gave us himself. Jesus Christ is the greatest self-revelation of God. But beyond that self-revelation, God's love is so great that Jesus made it possible for us to live through him. Jesus is our light and life. That's the first part of what it means for God to be loved. He gives us Jesus. And Jesus makes it possible for us to know God. Without Jesus, we could not know God. And God didn't need to do this. It's a a very important truth to believe in your heart that God doesn't need you. He gives you of himself. His love is so great that he wants to be with you anyway. He loved us with his presence. His love was made manifest to us in Christ Jesus. Verse 10 says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John's words here directly contradict the the common and and secular understanding of verse 8, where it says God is love. Love is not defined by our capacity to love. Love's not defined by our definition of love. Or our ability even to love God. Or what we do for God. In fact, without God acting first, we're completely unable to love God at all. And that statement's really similar to Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where Paul says this. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then again in verse 10 of that same chapter, he says, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. While we were enemies... Imagine if we got to define love, love for God especially. In our sinful state, love would be an evil thing. Everything that we did in the name of loving God or loving people would be a true expression of love. And that's a common accusation the world makes against Christians already, right? They say, well, they love God, but they did this and that. Fair enough. It's certainly true that Christians have had some pretty big failings throughout the years. In our ability to love people and even to love God. But people, even Christian people, don't get to define love. Only God gets to do that. And love looks like this. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's not just the self-revelation of God. It's the self-sacrifice of God. Remember 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Right. That's the greatest expression of God's love. The sacrifice of Christ. Propitiation could be translated atoning sacrifice. He gives himself to us. He lays his life down to us. He opens himself up makes himself known, and then he dies in our stead. That's what it means to love one another. And Paul has a very famous passage about love that we've all heard before at a wedding or two. But that passage is actually about how the church should be loving one another. First Corinthians chapter 13. And as John has told us so far, we can't be loving one another unless we know about God's love for us. So I want you to hear this famous wedding passage again with fresh ears this morning as a description of God's love for us. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So God has shown us exactly what love is. The way that God loves us is exactly like this. He is patient and kind with us. He doesn't boast over us, but he joins with us. God is great in his love. Amen. Now John turns his attention in 1 John to how we can know that God's love has been perfected in us. Love perfected. Verse 17 says, by this is love perfected with us. Okay, so it's an interesting phrase. What does it mean for love to be perfected? Well, even that phrase isn't new. We've heard it so far back in chapter 2, verse 5. means that God's love has been brought to completion in our hearts. means we've experienced the love of God. Verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And that again is the same move that John made back in chapter 3. He sees God's great example of love in Jesus Christ on the cross, and he tells us we should do likewise. Okay? But how can we know that God's love has been perfected in us? How can you be sure that you have received God's love? Three ways. First, if we abide in love. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The first part of that verse, no one has ever seen God, seems to come out of nowhere. But this idea, which we've already talked about, that God is invisible unless he reveals himself, is all throughout the gospel of John, the same author of this book. John chapter 1, verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God, right? The same statement. And he says this at the, the rest of the verse, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one that reveals the Father. Now you might be thinking, hey, didn't some Old Testament people see God? That's true. Moses, for instance, was given a vision of God. But no one accidentally ever runs into God. They don't try really hard to meditate and get a glimpse of God when he doesn't want to be seen. God is only ever seen if He wants to reveal Himself. Otherwise, God is invisible to us. God must act first to reveal Himself to you. There's a deep spiritual truth there. No one reveals God to someone else. God reveals Himself to you. That's an amazing truth about the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus, fully God and fully man, again, is the greatest self-revelation of God. So why does John bring it up here in verse 12? Well, because another aspect of God's self-revelation is his love abiding in us. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God abides in us. Christians, God abides in you. He indwells you by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells, is inside of and a part of Every believer. That's what verse 13 is getting at. The Spirit brings God's love to completion in our hearts. And we can know that we abide in Him because of that fact. Verse 13 isn't trying to get us to base our assurance of salvation on some sense of the Spirit's presence. It's telling us a fact. That's why verses 14 and 15 return to the idea of Jesus Christ. The Son has been sent into the world, right? That's a historical fact. And anyone who confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him. So if you believe that Jesus is Lord, that He is Savior of the world, the Son of God come in the flesh, and those are all terms that John uses throughout the book, then it is a fact that the Holy Spirit indwells you. Your sense of the Spirit Your relationship with Him kind of ebbs and flows throughout life. Our lives are full of times when we have a greater sense of the Spirit and when our sense of Him is dulled, right? Situations in our lives can greatly impact our sense of the Spirit. Sin certainly gets gets in the way of our relationship with the Lord. Busy schedules keep us away from His Word and from prayer and from people. But that never changes the fact That the Spirit indwells you. And that is good news today. That's why verse 16 uses language that is so sure. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Our salvation, the Spirit's indwelling, is not possible through our own effort. We can't convince God to save us, it's only by His grace so we can know and believe the love that God has for us because it's only on Him. He gives Himself to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And He continually gives Himself to us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God is love. John restates that in verse 16. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Notice that there's a mutual abiding here, right? This word abide has been a key word throughout the book of 1 John. It speaks to the union that we have in God, an inseparable relationship. It's about the fact that Christians cannot be separated from God because of his love and grace, not because of anything we've done. We remain in him. There's nothing that can pull us apart. So, how can we know that God's love has been perfected or brought to its fullness in our hearts? Because He loves us, not because of something we've done. He loves us and we abide in Him through the Spirit. It's a statement of fact. Do you have confidence in that fact today? If you have confessed Jesus Christ, if you believe in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, the Spirit indwells you. You don't have to do anything to earn that. That's just true. Second, we can know that God's love has been perfected in us because our fear has been cast out by love. He goes on By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. The day of judgment is coming. It will be here before we know it, actually. So, how can we have confidence before God on the day of judgment? How can we know that love has been perfected in us to the extent that we no longer have fear? John says, Because as He is, so also are we. In this world. And that sentence is a little bit confusing in the ESV. So, this is what one of my favorite translations, the New Living Translation, says. But we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. We were once sinners, separated from God, but now, because of God's grace, we live like Jesus in this world. That doesn't mean we're perfectly free from sin, but this is what it does mean Christians. God looks at you, and He he doesn't see your sin, He sees the righteousness of Christ. We have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and because of this, we can have confidence in the day of judgment. The judgment day can be something that we look forward to, actually, because we will hear the good news that we've been saved because of the righteousness of Christ. Amen? Maybe you dread judgment this morning. If you are a Christian, it's going to be a party. It's going to be great. You can look forward to it. So there is no fear in love. Verse 18. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The good news of the gospel is that God so loved us that he sent his son to die in our place, to declare us righteous in him. If we had to stand before God solely based on our own works and our own righteousness, there would be a lot of fear. We would have a lot to be afraid of. But that's not the case. God's perfect love casts out fear of judgment. The work of salvation is finished. And so if, if you came here today and the idea of God's judgment fills you with dread and fills you with fear, as it should apart from Christ, the good news for you is that Jesus took the punishment for sin that you deserve upon himself. You don't have to fear punishment. You don't have to fear judgment. You only need Jesus and the righteousness he gives to you. As a reminder of Jesus' sacrifice, John says, we love because he first loved us. When we hear something like that, We love because He first loved us. We should immediately think of the cross. That is where God's love was put on display in the fullest sense. That's where He made it possible for us to respond to Him in love. We love because He first loved us. We can know that we've been perfected in love because we no longer fear judgment. Fear has been cast out by God's love for us on the cross. Not just our sin was dealt with on the cross, but also your fear. So I want to encourage you today with the words of Christ from the book of John. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The last way we can know that we've been perfected in love is if we love in real life. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God Whom he has not seen. Here John is using a common logical argument. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If you can't lift 5 pounds, you can't lift 20 pounds, right? If you don't even love your brother in Christ who you see right before you, you can't possibly truly love God who is only visible if he reveals himself. Verse 21 and chapter 5 continue the thought. In this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. The church is not a perfect place, especially local churches. Lake Morton Community Church is a great church, but it's not a perfect place. I bet if I asked you to raise your hand if you've ever had a traumatizing experience in the church, Many of you would raise your hand. Traumatizing or bad? I would. When I was in high school, I belonged to a youth group uh, that I grew a lot in. It was vibrant and good, and the youth pastor is really great, and he still serves the Lord, not at that church. But the senior pastor turned out to be a liar and a charlatan and a pretty bad guy all around the church failed. It doesn't exist anymore. Experiences like that can make you really bitter toward the church. I don't know what your experience was, but it can make you really bitter. It can make you cynical and untrusting of others. There can even be the temptation through an experience like that of thinking, we don't really need the church Or that if we open ourselves up to people again, we're only going to get hurt. I understand that temptation intimately. I was bitter at the church for a while. I saw my beloved youth pastor get fired from this church because he disagreed with some of the horrible stances of the senior pastor. It was a really bad situation. And I was bitter. And the temptation was there to think that every church must be like that. I was bitter until I felt the conviction of the Lord actually from this passage. Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. That's talking about the church. That's talking about fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And that realization turned my bitterness around. The local church is not perfect, and we can't really expect it to be. We're we're sinners, right? And sometimes because of sin, we hurt each other. But the one who claims to love God must also love his church. So how can we be certain that we love the people of God? That's John's next question. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. John ties up loving God with loving his people. They've got to be the same thing according to John. They're not two sides of the coin. They are the coin, right? It's the whole thing. Loving God and loving people are inseparable. We reveal we love God when we love his people. You can't have one without the other. Remember chapter 3, verse 23, and this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. It's one commandment. And this love was practical and real. It had real-world application. Chapter 3, verse 17, I'll remind you, says this, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? We have an obligation to each other. We need to reveal God's love to one another in real, tangible ways. The good news is that this commandment, according to verse 3, is not burdensome. It's not hard to do. When we have the right view of the church, that it's a collection of saved sinners in constant need of grace and in constant temptation to return to sin, God gives us the patience and the right attitude to carry out our love for one another. That's the work of the Spirit. Sometimes it might feel like a burden to love people, but the Spirit will always give us the the strength to extend the love of God to our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we were still part of the world, we would think that loving other people is a burden. It's something really hard to do. And we applaud those in the world who try really hard to love other people. But verse 4 says, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And that's connected to the previous sentence. That's kind of unclear in the ESV. But it's all one sentence. And his commandments are not burdensome for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So how should we love each other? Not as we would define love, but as God defines love. Self-sacrificially with real presence and real application, meeting each other's needs, building relationships when we don't have to have relationships. And it's a promise that God's love has been perfected in us. That's, That's a promise. It's true right now. It may not feel like God's love has been perfected in you, but if the Spirit abides in you, His love has been perfected in your salvation and justification. His love has been brought to completion in our hearts if we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, if our fear of judgment has been replaced by confidence on the day of judgment, and if we love God's children like we love him. And in the spirit of loving one another, we're going to celebrate communion today. It's a tangible expression of the gospel, it teaches our senses about the death and resurrection of Christ, and it's a meal we share it's an expression of our love together so as we take communion in the next several minutes i'd encourage you to do so with a heart full of love for the people sitting around you remember we can't say we love god and not love his people so in communion if you typically think of it as a as an individual spiritual thing i'd tell you again to look around at your brothers and sisters who are metaphorically eating the same bread and drinking the same cup of the new covenant with you. And later on, afterwards, we're going to go downstairs as a church. and We're going to celebrate the second ordinance that Jesus gave to his church, baptism. Four individuals today, disciples of Jesus Christ, are going to be baptized. Praise the Lord. And that too is not an individual thing. Is a thing the church celebrates together. And even after that, we're going to have a potluck, some fellowship, like we always do on the day we celebrate communion. So please stick around to have some real life love with other people, to love them in real life, be in their lives. We are the family of God. Amen? So let's approach the Lord's table together. I'd ask you now to bow your heads and Prepare your hearts as the ushers come forward. Pray and ask the Lord for forgiveness of certain convictions on your heart. If there's somebody in this room that you are out of proper relationship with, I'd encourage you to withhold from partaking here until that relationship is solved. Let's take some time in prayer. we thank you for the opportunity now to proclaim your death until you come, as your word says in 1 Corinthians. We pray now that you would be on our minds and on our hearts, that we wouldn't just take this willy-nilly as a ritual, but as a way to draw closer to you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.